the first way that we were able to literally prove the concept was we had NHL All-Star Fan Balloting, which for every league had always been paper. It always been only in the arenas, only during a six-week window, and it was only paper. So it was a very small world of engagement. So the proof in the pudding was after six weeks and we counted our ballots, we used to have 2 million ballots when it was paper. And then from our first time at NHL.com, we had 20 million ballots. So that showed the power of digital. Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where my partner, Joe Favorito, and I talk about the business of sports with all kinds of interesting people. Joe, I want to open up by saying it's a great time to be a sports fan, unless, of course, you live in New York, something you noted on Twitter recently. But think about it. This is coming out, right? At This will be out, this show, the opening week of NHL season, probably the day after the, the NHL season opens. Mm-hmm. NBA in two weeks, NFL's in full swing. We got some really exciting MLB playoffs. We got the World Cup qualifiers. Uh, WNBA playoffs have been really interesting. A lot of cool stuff going on. I hope you've been enjoying it. And we have the collapse of the NWSL, but that's another whole. Well, yeah, that probably deserves its own discussion. Um, And also for for those you anybody listening, this will be the week after the first one, but. This, this Sunday and several other Sundays into the fall will be the first 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. wall-to-wall NFL coverage starting with games in London and then playing all the way through to Thursday night to Sunday night football, which you can watch on broadcast TV all the way through, although all reports are you may have to have an Apple device at some point to watch Sunday night football, but that's down the road. We don't have to talk about yeah. that. Joe, I heard an interesting stat this morning. I know you read Kendall Baker's Yep. Uh, weekly morning newsletter. I think it's a great summary of mm-hmm. all the key stuff. If, if you've missed uh, some of the action the night before, especially. But did you see what, what he said this morning about how the NFL's never had any yes. winning teams play? Two in, winning teams. There never been a game between two winning teams. I'm sorry, be, between right. two winning teams. Uh, you know, which, winning which teams. by the way, is also the same unless you've gone to opening day at MetLife Stadium any time in the last five years, given the records <laughs> right. of the Jets and the Giants. Right, right. So, but I'm, but I didn't realize the yeah. Jacksonville Jaguars have so dominated the London game for so long, yeah. and obviously yeah. probably not a great choice for this season. But that's a whole nother thing mm-hmm. going on. But anyway, yeah, no, it's it's really fun right now. A plethora with the plethora of sports to watch and, and pay attention to, and lots of really interesting business issues. I'm I'm still. Uh, giddy about the NFL announcement with their Dapper Labs deal. I'm happy to report I was back in the queue with Top Shot yesterday and I snagged my second pack of WNBA moments. Very and happy. Tom, how's your horse doing? Uh, the horses are doing pretty good. I'm excited, Joe, to tell you that our podcasting guest from a couple months ago, Roman, will be joining the digital class in a couple of weeks. There we go. Zedron. Yeah, the, the Zed Run stuff, but really, uh, that should be really fun. Anyway, let's get to our guest because we've got a terrific guest today, Joe. Someone yeah, happy guest. to this call better than most. A, a, happy to call a friend and an old colleague, a woman who has one of the most impressive pedigrees in the sport of hockey, which is where we met at the NHL. But she started out at the San Jose Sharks, went on to a distinguished career at the NHL, where. By the way, along the way, Joe, when I was checking her LinkedIn profile, there was a phrase I wrote down. And Elise, you got to talk about this in a minute. You were called a digital transformation specialist at one point in the mid-aughts. And I want to know what exactly that meant in the mid-aughts. Anyway, um, then she went on to Time Warner. And then she's gone, done some entrepreneurial stuff including getting involved with one of the great ventures uh, of in the business of sports and tech right now, women in sports tech, or sometimes called- Much needed, West, very much needed. Which I know you know a lot about, Joe. <clears throat> and um, perhaps most important for her career, she started a very successful advisory business, New Model Advisory, and has been working with some really interesting clients, particularly in the world of entrepreneurism. So we are thrilled to welcome Elise Soul to the show. Lise, great to have you. Uh, it's it's del- I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> <laughs> right, Thank we you. left her speechless with that introduction, Joe. Um, Elise, it, it's funny. I, I just joked before we started speaking, and I think even before Joe got on, that um, we've been 
trying to schedule at least for, for a show for many months. And it is kind of ironic that this show is being going to be released probably the day after the opening night of the NHL season. So at least let's, let's start there with hockey because boy, what a resume in the world of hockey. And I don't want to spend too much time on it because I'd like to have the bulk of this uh, time together to focus on WIST and your, your advising services. But we got to hear a little bit about the backstory. How did you get into it? How did you last so long in, in, that, in that sport? And you know, take us through the history a little bit. So it, it is ironic because for all the years that I worked uh, at the NHL, you know, the month leading into this date was just nonstop. So I'm actually relaxed because I don't deal with it now. But um, just a, a, a quick a, a quick background, which will which which will make things pretty clear about why I got into hockey is I was actually growing up as a competitive figure skater. And I used to train on the same ice as the Rangers and I would train on the same ice as the Islanders. And when, uh, you know, we would get in early in the morning and we would do our skating. And then as we were leaving, you know, the guys used to come on the ice and they would have, you know, black and blue eyes and broken noses. And this is how I felt about the sport of hockey is, you know, Ron Duguay coming in every morning with, you know, black and blue eyes and broken noses. I'm like, Ugh. when I went to college, the, um, the, the coach of the women's ice hockey team found me on campus and said, I know you're this figure skater, but do you, would you ever consider playing hockey? And I called my parents that night and I told them about it. And my mother's like, absolutely not. I like your facial features. And my father was like, are you kidding? This is the opportunity for you to be part of the team, do it. So I started playing, believe it or not, varsity ice hockey. And you had to learn how to skate in hockey skates is very different from figure skates and like the whole thing, but it was, it was so amazing. And it was an extraordinary experience, certainly for, for women, I think, for females, because it's, it's an amazing sport to play. You're totally suited up. And there's so much finesse as well. You know, there's brute force, but there's, there's finesse. So I played it for four years, loved it. And then when I graduated from college, I was like, oh, I need to get me some of that. And, and so at just least by, that was at Cornell, correct? I'm sorry. Yes, that was at Cornell. Okay. And so um, when I... I, I was working in, you know, down on Wall Street and in marketing for a little bit. And I, my, both my sisters had moved to Northern California. This is the very late 1980s. And they're like, come move out to Northern California. And I'm like, eh, what am I going to do? So they're like, oh, go, you know, I'm like, there's no hockey out there. There's no nothing. So I literally just, you know, made a couple of phone calls. And it turns out that one of the people I spoke to, his name is Matt Levin, uh, who was one of the founders of the San Jose Sharks and we connected and he brought me out to California to work for the Sharks. And so I was one of those kind of like the original six in the front office of the Sharks. And the big joke was, you know, there were six, there were like maybe six ice rinks in a 300 mile radius. And there were maybe 300 kids playing organized youth ice hockey in that market. And the question was, how are you going to build a market to market to? So that's what I started doing in San Jose. And we built a bunch of programs that were now considered fan acquisition, um, which was all about, you know, getting people engaged in sport, educating them, having them play street hockey, roller hockey, ice hockey. And the whole thing just kind of grew from a grassroots perspective. So three years into that, Commissioner Bettman comes in and he's like, Elise, you want to come to New York because I want you to do for all the teams what you did for the Sharks. And I was like, yeah, I don't know that they're going to like that. You know, I'm going to make all these teams miserable. But um, that's how it started. And that's how wow. we started fan development at the NHL. And I got there in 1993. So I was there for the when the Rangers won the Stanley Cup in 1994. And it was just I was I found home. That's the only way that I that I can position it is that I found right. home. And of course there were very few women who played ice hockey at the time. So that was a very, um, it was, I'm not going to say an easy in, but back then to be able to get into a high level sport, if you were a woman who didn't play it, right. That was very difficult, but I had already been playing. So it was easy to kind of show that I had all those requisite um, requirements. At least I'm still thinking about the juxtaposition at Cornell of you one day at the rink being in your figure skating outfit and then the next day being in a hockey 
hockey uniform. Uh, yeah. Your friends must have been wondering, what are you doing? They were, they were a little uh, surprised. Yeah, no, that's really, what a, great, what a great story. Talk about jumping on an opportunity. So when you evolved your career at the NHL, like when I was there in the late 90s, you were doing different kinds of fan development, marketing, et cetera, but you did get involved with more direct, directly with digital at one point. Talk about that and kind of what you were doing vis-a-vis -vis this uh, digital transformation specialist role that you had. So when I, so for the first, let's say, I don't know, seven or eight years at the NHL, I was focused on building a fan base. Um, and then the, uh, the lockout, of 2002, 2004, 2005 happened. And obviously everything stopped. So at that time, um, we were not developing fans. We were really trying to figure out who our fans were. And because we had to start all over again, it was really identifying where, where our fans really sat in the landscape so that we could literally reconstruct ourselves. So I literally went into marketing and we didn't have a marketing group then. So I just literally became head of marketing and trying to figure out, you know, who are our fans? So, you know, they were, turns out they were male. We knew that. Turns out they were a little older than what we had hoped, but you know, they were probably 20 to 50. Okay. A little outside the sweet spot. They were, um, uh, the most affluent of any league, we knew that, but then we found out that they were early adopters of technology. So that, that alone was going to be our game changer. And we, when we were trying to figure out how are we gonna market to this specific group and how are we gonna do it differently than anybody else had, that was, and you'll appreciate this, Tom, that was when NHL.com went from being just a thought process to the, the engine that, mm -hmm drove everything related to the NHL. So I was like, we have to become the digital league. We have to use NHL.com as the repository, the first touch and the last touch of mm -hmm. everything that we do as a league. And that is how we're gonna be able to position ourselves differently. So um, it was a, I'm not gonna say it was a hard sell, but you had to get all of the owners to buy in. And the first way that we were able to literally prove the concept was we had NHL All-Star Fan Balloting, which for every league had always been paper. It always been only in the arenas, only during a six-week window, and it was only paper. So it was a very small world of engagement. So we got rid of all the paper, we opened it up to the whole world, and it was all driven by NHL.com. And so we got our players, our sponsors, our, um, our rights holders, Everybody was on the same page driving vote for NHL all-star, you know, fan balloting. And so the proof in the pudding was after six weeks and we counted our ballots, we used to have 2 million ballots when it was paper. And then from our first time at NHL.com, we had 20 million ballots. So that showed the power of digital. So question actually for both of you guys, since you're both there at the same time, when did any, when did NBC come into the mix, this whole mix? Because NBC obviously became a key driver and, and actually the NHL became a key driver for NBC in terms of their growth. Was it, was it around that time or was it? It was later? right after that time right. because it had been um, versus, right? Oh, that's Those, right. That is who we yeah. relaunched with was versus. And then if I understand yeah. was versus became part of NBC? Yes, I think so. Well, yes. versus started as Outdoor Life Network. That's right. Oh, Outdoor Life. Right. And, and, and by the way, and most people, Tom, listening to this right now, will think of versus as a music challenge, having no idea what versus. There was yes. actually a station, a thing at the time, too. Oh, so, very popular. Yeah. True. So wait, at least around that time, you also had to deal with, it just occurred to me, the early stage of social media with Facebook and four and what, YouTube, I guess, 2005, Twitter. Etc. Was that part of the agenda to figure out how, because this was a new challenge to leagues, how to corral a plan around social media? So we first started off with just what we called digital, which was NHL.com. And Tom, you'll appreciate this because it's, it's not easy, you know, between the league and the teams and getting appropriate real estate. And, you know, now it's very simple. I shouldn't use the word simple, but there is a methodology and a process by which all of the teams and the league 
are on the same page as it relates to their websites, right? Back then, it wasn't. So the team was doing this, the league was doing that, the Players Association was doing that. So we had to get everybody on the same page. Social did not come into the picture until a few years after that. Because again, as you are all aware, legacy sports are last to the game of digital transformation. So by the time everybody, all the other uh, adjacent um, markets and verticals had already you know, hopped on the social bandwagon, leagues weren't there yet. They were later to the game. And that was just, it's no different today, but that was how it was back then. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, it is interesting to think about that, how they were concerned. I, I know, um, I, I think Joe's heard me tell the story before, but back in 99, 2000, when we kind of had a sense that user-generated content was gonna be really important, of course, it became transformational. I had a conversation with the commissioner and some others, you might've been in it, about whether or not we should include discussion boards in NHL.com. And the commissioner was quite concerned about what might be said. And I assured him that we would have some monitoring of those boards, some language filtering software, but the idea was to provide a forum. And as I, I remember distinctly saying to him, if we do not do it ourselves, they will find another place to do it. And then you'll come back to me and wonder where our traffic is not as good as it should be. So it is a really interesting transformation that occurred because now when you look at the efforts uh, and something Joe knows a lot about in social media that are being applied to social by the leagues, especially the more aggressive ones in social like NBA uh, and NFL, uh, it's, it's kind of amazing what, uh, what a change has occurred over the course of 15 years. And then, and by the way, they act like they all created it, which was great. <laughs> right. Well, not to mention that. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of revisionist history. That's why. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty, Elise, about the early days of social. Um, <laughs> let's move. I mean, there's a bunch of other things in your background I wouldn't mind talking about, but I know with the time we have, I'd rather get to uh, to present day. So you've got two worlds that you're you're working in right now. Let's start off with the one that is really interesting on, on many levels, I think to a lot of us and a lot of listeners for sure, which is this idea of women in sports tech, which is literally the name of the organization. So spend um, a quick minute on what WIST is and your role as board chair and uh, what you see it uh, doing as we move forward. I'm happy to, and thank you so much for bringing it up. So WIST, which is Women in Sports Tech, is a, uh, it's a nonprofit organization started a little over three years ago uh, by some senior women in the world of sports who wanted to pave the way for young women who are interested in technology to understand that they can apply technology in the world of sports. And because there's still this concept and construct that sports is physically playing a game and that's fantastic. But then there's a whole nother layer that is included as part of the business of sports, which is sport, the technology that goes behind sports, whether that's an infrastructure, whether it's um, you know arena technology, whether it's broadcast technology, whether it's performance technology, whether it's fan engagement technology, but those are all technology-based engagements. And for young women, especially who have, who are engaged in, in STEM, they're engaged in data analytics, they're engaged in technologies. We want them to understand that there's more to life than Google. And if they want to marry their experience or their love of sports with their ability in the world of technology, this, we are promoting that. Mm -hmm. So music to my ears. And, and I've told, I think I've told the story once before. And actually there, the, the young lady, who, his name, her name is Olivia Schumacher. She's now at the University of Texas. When I did my high school class for five years, we would get an increasing number of girls who would come in. And Olivia came in one day and she said, you know, I play lacrosse, I've hurt my knee, and I've always shared sports with my dad. And my dad turned to me one day and he said, you could have a career in sports. Why not you? And I turned to her and I said, you're right. Why not you? So I've been mentoring Olivia and probably about a dozen other young girls as they come across. And when you talk about STEM, and by the way, the one, the one kind of elephant in the room involving technology is gambling and gambling continues to grow. And there's so many opportunities around the data that comes into that, but STEM is so important. 
And a lot of times people look at STEM and they're like, oh, what does it have to do with us? When in reality, good luck trying to find something in sports, even printing tickets that doesn't have to do with STEM. Uh, and the other example that I use all the time is my son was lucky enough to be on the world championship high school robotics team in New Jersey. We won the world championship. It was an amazing story. But the beauty of that was ro competitive robotics brings together boys and girls and kind of people are interested in the, the science side and people are interested in the competitive sports side, like nothing I've ever seen before. And I've always spoken to the young women who are part of the, the robotics clubs in New Jersey where, where, that were around, telling them that this is a door that is opening up. If you wanna get involved in some form of quote sport, this is the way in because now if you know how to code, you can figure out how to get in in any organization because all the older guys who are sitting around have no idea what coding is and want to know how to use a digital device or a mobile device. So you have an advantage that you don't even realize. You just have to have the confidence and have the people be able to push you forward. So I'm, I'm glad that you guys are pushing people forward. And, you know, hopefully we can help you do that. And how can we do that? Tom, so, yeah, so at least talk about the specific initiatives, the things you're actually doing in the market that 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 that, that um, bring this to life. So thank you so much. Um, so there's a few that are really critical. And one, I think actually Joe speaks exactly to what you were talking about. We've got something called a fellowship program and we've had that since the very beginning. So every summer we, and last summer we did 24 interns. We will screen um, females that are, uh, that are in the, both the sports and the technology area from universities, they could be anywhere from undergrad through getting their PhD. And we then uh, align them with summer internships that we pay for uh, with sports tech startups, with the likes mm. of Nike, with the likes of Comcast, so that they can have real world experience. And we have been able through a program like that to A, expose these really amazing young women into areas where they're checking out, oh, do I wanna be there? But at the same time, we're taking these amazing companies and we're giving them great, great people. So, and a lot of our, our summer interns have gone on to full-time positions with the companies that they were interning for. And, and it becomes this kind of a virtuous cycle, if you will, because the fellows, our former fellows, if you will, become a part of WIS, they become evangelists for WIS, but they also expand our universe into younger generations as well as more companies. So we've got we've got like 25 companies who are part of the WIST world who want these amazing fellows and who also obviously provide donations as well as um, engagement. And I'm gonna give you another example uh, we, and this goes to the higher levels where we're talking about startups. We, um, we have a accelerator program where our board um, of which we've got, you know, people who are invest, women who are investors, not just women, women and men, but we've got investors, we've got venture capital people, um, people who are totally engaged in that startup world. We provide um, DENI in the form of leadership workshops for these accelerators like uh, Mass Challenge, like Comcast Sports Tech, um, like Lead Sports, and we also provide mentors. So it is a perfect way for right. us, when I say us, the women who are fully engaged in the world of sports technology to mentor founders, particularly female founders and founders of color. So we are trying to find ways, always of delivering value at the younger level, which is what we call next gen, which is literally an ambassador program where we're in the high schools and we're teaching kids DEI curriculum through the fellows program and then up through the accelerator program. So, so far so good. Wow. That's great stuff. Are you actually providing some sort of platform for job opportunities and, and search? Yes, we have a, a career network that is on with. So if you went to womeninsportstech.org and you go to the career hub, literally we've got our, again, our partners um, have, are able to list their jobs in that portal. And then the, um, the potential job seekers are also on there and those are all women. So it's, it's really trying to deliver a highly targeted market. 
I have a question for both both of you, Joe, in your mentorship role with the young woman you mentioned and Elise uh, vis-a-vis uh, WIST and the Career Network. One thing that I tell a lot of young people about the, the, the category of sports tech, which is vast, as you pointed out, Elise, it's, it's broad, there's a lot going on, is that not all the jobs in sports tech are tech jobs. In other words, you don't have to be a JavaScript expert or an iOS programmer necessarily to work in sports tech. In fact, there are lots of jobs in marketing, business development, strategy, partnerships, et cetera, but they happen to be with technology companies. And I would argue that even those that are staffed with the best technologists need really good business people, marketing people to make it a a full package. Is that part of your career network? And Joe, is that something that comes up in your conversations as as you're as you're uh, you, you mentor these young people. Mm-hmm. So yes, it is. Uh, whatever jobs these companies have, and they could be startup companies that have their technology people, but they need people on the business side, business development. They're all in there. It's mm-hmm. all in there. So right. it, you're, you, to your point, you're exactly right. It's working in the business of sports technology. Yeah. So so the one the one thing I would add to that is, you know, as People have heard me speak before. I've talked all about the last couple of years of David Stern's life, and I was lucky to be around him for a good part of that. And, you know, David would go in and talk to people, young and old, men and women, about really basic things. And the two things he would always come back to is, look, no matter who you are, no matter what business you're in, whether you're in technology and you want to be involved in a business that involves people, you have to be able to do two things. You have to be able to sell what it is that you're trying to do, and you have to know what your story is. So, the combination of storytelling and selling fit into everything. And whether it's funny you talk about technology, but when you look at the pharma business now and how pharma and health and wellness are growing in sports, well, there's a piece of technology or wearables that tie into all those things. And I don't think we're going to be able to go anywhere. Well, I don't think we can now without having some aspect of technology doing something, including what we're doing now on a Zoom call, where that can tie back to a core value if you want to work in sports media entertainment. So they just have to be able to figure it out. And the other piece is they have to know and be mentored. And that's why mentoring is so important, I believe, in what what are the skills that you have when someone listens to you that helps you set you apart from all the other people in the room? Because everybody has it. And a lot of times, especially with startups and entrepreneurs, they walk into a room and they have the founder's mentality where they have everything solved, they know everything, and they're not listening. But when you bring mentors into the program, they open the doors for you that you don't even know that can be opened. And that's why this is such an amazingly important organization to help open those doors and help people think about things that they are just not going to know about. Their parents aren't going to know about their teachers aren't going to know about because you keep casting a wider net. And unfortunately the last 18 months, Tom, as you and I know, we've talked about the randomness of running into people at events that hasn't been out there. So this is more important now than ever before to help reopen those doors, I believe. So, you know, and and I can't emphasize enough, I always tell young people, the four most important things you could probably have, be able to listen, have some empathy and curiosity, be able to, to adapt what it is that you wanna do. And if you can speak another language and have a knowledge of coding, you're ahead of most people who are 30 and older who are out there already and you're bringing something to the table that's pretty innate to you that you don't even realize. Yeah, that's well said, Joe. Um, and on your last point, right now, and Elise knows this, the demand for engineers, software engineers, Oof. is off the charts. It's literally the number one topic in virtually every conversation I come in. That's the number one challenge for our company, Mercury, as we try to grow. We have lots of opportunities for growth because digital is so important, but it is really hard to hire good engineers right now. And mm-hmm. even well-known entities in the business are having trouble hiring because there's essentially a universal need and big tech has created an environment that is so favorable to engineers, salaries, compensation, perks, uh, and overall compensation plus perks of the job. It's really hard to bring them into the sports world or media world sometimes because it's just not quite as alluring as mm-hmm. big tech. So it's, it's brutal out there. And I think at least the work you're doing with the Career Network uh, at WIST is actually really, um, it's, it's really great with where we're going right now because we're on the verge of, of getting deeper into Web3 
and blockchain technology where I was in a conversation about this this morning with, with the guys in my company, where the needs are going to start to vary, the knowledge is going to vary, and to the extent you can mentor through WIST and Joe, you with your personal mentoring uh, and encouragement of keeping an open mind and really jumping on the new trends, a lot of us feel, at least Joe and I have mentioned this before, this feels a little bit like 1994, 93, yeah. when we knew the web was coming and there's going to be a ton of opportunities. So yeah. it's, it's a very good time to be in that world of facilitating those opportunities. Joe. Hey, sorry. before we move on to your other piece of business, Elise, what's, how come it's, what's the biggest challenge that you guys have? It's the perfect opportunity, but yet it's not 25,000 companies that you're working with. It's, it's a, a growing number, but it's still not what it probably should be. Um, and and what is the issue that you think as to why it's not growing faster and should it be growing faster? How do you make it grow faster? What do you need? Well, what you're, what the, you're referring specifically to the ability for women to engage in sports technology. Yes. yes. <laughs> so I think there's a number of things. Um, I do not, I, I, I believe that um, the ability for women to access and learn how to be a part of the tech economy is that the, the uh, barriers to access are about as low as they've ever been, meaning that it is now much easier for young women and young girls to be able to access technology um, and learn about it as part of, you know, STEM programs that, that have nothing to do with us. They are just, you know, they're part of a core curriculum. I think that one of the big issues, certainly as it relates to sports, is that there has always been this thought process that you have to play the sport to understand it and to be a part of it. Um, that was how I got into hockey, was because I played it. Now, it doesn't mean I would not have been every bit as good an executive if I hadn't played it, but the expectation was that you got to know how to play this game or you can't be in this organization. Now, that has changed drastically, but not enough. And I think that um, the more these inherent biases about women and certainly people of color who have not necessarily grown up playing these sports, particularly what we know as legacy white collar sports, I'm just going to put it out there, there is a deficit there. And the ability to overcome that deficit is really, really important. And that is everybody at the leagues, everybody who's in the world of sports, Everybody who is related to the sports ecosystem in some way, shape, or form needs to eliminate that bias and understand that the person that they're talking to, no matter who they are, where they come from, what they look like, are they the best ones to do this job? That is really critical. Well said. Excellent. So let's pivot over to your advisory work, which we've discussed um, many times and I find quite interesting because you've, you've kind of found this really good angle in that world, which I know well having started my own consulting business a while back, long time ago, uh, that I think really certainly makes sense for the time. And it sounds as though you, the way you've been able to build it has been um, really shrewd and it's kind of paying some nice dividends dividends for you right now. So, so talk about that. Talk about, let's start with the beginning. like you had to conceive of what you were gonna offer the market in terms of your services. Go back to, to that origin story of your business. I will, it, and you know, I, I started off in sports, as you know, I was at the NHL for 17 years. And when I left the NHL, which was in 2007, the impetus for leaving was because I had had, the last part of my time at the NHL was that whole digital marketing engagement. And when I saw the power of digital media and digital marketing, I was like, I got to get me more of that. So that is one of the reasons why I left sports and I went to Time Warner because I really wanted to be, I wanted to understand how digital media worked. And then the more I understood it, and then the more that I understood that like anything else, it's about content and advertising, content and brands, then I f started focusing in on advertising technology because that was the tech stack that was created for advertising technology was about as close as anybody would ever come to being able to say, I'm a brand and that's the person I'm reaching, okay? Mm -hmm. That is what the advertising tech stack has done. So 
when I, I, so I've gone through these iterations and I've seen the power of that. And one of the things that was very clear to me is that sports, legacy sports, as you and I all refer to them as, did not, they, they never changed their business model to accommodate this kind of, as an example, advertising technology, right? So if I'm Toyota and I, and I know how to engage in a digital media campaign and I'm gonna pay, let's just say $15 a CPM to reach exactly the person I want and I have this huge conversion rate, I know those numbers. If I'm Toyota and I'm a sponsor of a team or a league, all right, I don't get that same conversion rate. I pay a fortune and I don't know who I'm getting. So there is this problem that brands, when they're advertisers in the world of digital media, want the same kind of return, rate of return, when they're sponsors in the world of sports and they don't get it. Why? Because sports is not harvesting and harnessing the power of technology to help them understand who are my, who's my audience, who's sitting in my arena, what should be going on in my, my CRM, like all of the things that they need to do to be competitive, they're not doing. So I was like, oh, I, I want to solve that problem. So that is when I decided that I was going to get back in the world of sports and do it with tech and, and find and source those technologies that were addressing pain points specific to the world of sports. Because this whole concept of sports tech, pretty nascent. Let's say it's maybe, I don't know, five, six, seven years old. Because prior to that, technologies that were built for other markets were retrofitted to address sports and it was very clunky. So the first part of my advisory was going back to the sports properties and helping them address why they had these problems. You know, somebody who's a CMO at a, you know, of, of the Colorado Avalanche at the time was like, at least I have no idea who's sitting in my, my seats. I don't know who's sitting in my arena. I'm like, well, Maybe you need to talk about, you know, considering a fan engagement tool that is, you know, when you're in arena, they're going to gamify the app and then you're going to be able to download information and you're going to get that person who was sitting in the seat and that's going to go into your CRM and voila, you're going to be able, you know, it's not that easy, but it's just, they have to understand the why they're having the problem and then understand there is technology that is out there that can solve for that problem. So that's how I first started. And then I started really getting involved with these the startups themselves who had the power to solve these problems, but they could not engage properly with sports properties. Why? Because these companies are technology vendors. They want to be paid like a vendor. You know, sports properties, they don't spend their own money. They're going to take a technology and send it to the sponsorship group. And that is a complete misalignment. So, then when I'm working with these companies that are the sports you know, startups, I'm saying to them, you have to be able to show an ROI. You have to be able to show a team, as an example, that if they're going to spend, you know, for every dollar they spend on you as an investment, they're going to generate $5. So that way they're not going to send you the sponsorship. They're going to, you're going to say, you spend 10,000 on me, you're going to get $50,000 in ROI. So it's just the ability to create this marriage where the sports properties understand what technology can do for them. And this technology companies understand how they can deliver value for the sports properties. So then, so that was like, so my, so my advisory that started off trying to help sports properties understand their issues morphed into trying to help these technologies who are solving those problems deliver the value that a sports property could understand. Now, I, I work with accelerators as, as a mentor. I help source these companies. I create deal flow. I come on as an advisor. And because I'm a broker dealer, which means that if anybody who's ever been on Wall Street had to take their Series 7 and Series 63, which is the most miserable thing in the world, I now have the ability to help companies fundraise and companies exit and companies do mergers and acquisitions. So that's the world that I operate in. Wow, cool. great story. Hey, um, without, I know, I know it's probably confidential on some of the clients or some of the deals that you've been done. Typically when you're working with a client, how many do you have as a consultant at one particular time? Is there a critical mass and how do you manage your time around them? It's a great question. I, I have right now probably about nine 
startups that I work with. And it's, it, you know, the ebb and flow is when you first get engaged with a startup, you spend a lot of time with them because you have to understand their business model. You have to understand their pain points. You have to help them, you know, identify their product market fit. So maybe you're spending two or three hours a week with them. Then as you're helping them fundraise, you're holding their hand because with fundraising, you're going to investor groups and you are, you have to deliver to these investor groups square pegs that fit in square holes. You, do, you never want to put a square peg in a round hole because that's your personal currency on the line and you're not going to waste anybody's time, either the, neither the startup or the other, or the other. Then there's other companies where they're rocking and they just need me you know, an hour a month because they're touching base with me. So it just depends on where they are in their life cycle. But there definitely is a critical mass. And if it's a company that is in a certain stage of its life cycle where it's going to need a lot of help, then I have to operate accordingly because the last thing you want is not to be able to execute or you need to execute flawlessly and you need to be able to deliver what you're going to promise. You know, you, you, it's that whole, you know, that usual line of, you know, over uh, under promise and over deliver. Yep. Elise, Joe and I have both had consulting experiences with startups and early stage companies as, as you have. I have my own thoughts on this, but I want to get yours. What do you think is um, the most common mistake that the entrepreneurs are making when it comes to how they present themselves, especially to the investment community? I'm sure we've all been in those meetings where you're kind of kicking them under the the table as the senior advisor, let's say, who's helping them because you're witnessing some really bad pitching. Ah, so it is a fine line, okay? When you're pitching, you have to read the room and you have to understand who you're pitching to. Because you can either be overconfident and overaggressive, or you can be like the little lamb in the slaughter. And it, the, biggest, the biggest problem is when a startup founder is pitching, they need to have done their diligence on the investment company first. So they need to know when they're walking in, who they're walking in to see. And it also has a lot to do with Honestly, if the founder is a female founder, right, and if the people she's pitching to are all men, the questions that men ask female founders, very different from the questions that men ask male founders, right? Men will ask questions of female founders like, so, you know, how are you going to be able to, you know, bring your CAC down? And then they'll ask questions of the male founders. So how are you going to be a unicorn? All right. So there are these it's so you have to a, a really good founder when they walk into the room is going to be able to read the room is going to be able to know ahead of time the background of the people who are sitting in that room and they are going to know that they have to tell their story in the most efficient and effective way if an investor doesn't align with them then don't waste your time and i'm saying this about the founder because I've had founders come back to me and say, I don't understand. They didn't like me, they didn't this. And I'm like, if there's not an alignment, let them go and focus on someone else. Because investors are like your parents. They're with you for a very long time. Sometimes they're gonna be driving you nuts and sometimes they're gonna leave you alone. But you wanna be, you as a founder need to be as diligent about your investors as you are, as they are about you. That's great. You know, one of the things when I when I was young and working at a publishing company before I got into sports was very extensively sales trained. It was, a, it was a really good company and they were they were really into training. And one of the exercises we did, which I've told this story before to various folks, was objection handling, like live objection handling, where you'd be given an objection in front of your peers, let's say in a conference room, and you had to kind of stand and deliver with an answer. And the idea of role-playing for like a objection handling is something that I would often bring up at least conceptually to companies that I was consulting with. I said, okay, let, let me give you a few ideas of what they might say or how they might object. And I'd say, what if somebody says this? And you probably know where I'm going with this. More often than not, they would just not be prepared of how to come up with a good 
succinct response to what would be, I think for most common sense driven people, a pretty simple question about their business. And I would then say with, with, with my best uh, consulting uh, tact, it's like, look, you just have to be ready. You, you have to anticipate objections. You have to anticipate pushback because it's not going to be smooth sailing in any conversation that involves asking for money. So you have to be ready. And trust me, the exercise of thinking of the words and phrases and sentences and paragraphs you want to use is really valuable. Now, I can't say everybody listen to me, but that was the advice I would dish out. because <laughs> it, it usually helps when you at least are sensitive to that. It's true. And I think that when you are, when you're a founder and you're pitching, like, like, you know, I always say pitching makes perfect, right? The more you do, the better you get. Uh, and the best pitches that I've seen, and I, I, one of the, one of the most wonderful experiences I have, and I have this a couple of times a year is when you're, you're kind of like, I'm, I'm a judge of a number of, of accelerators. So they'll start off with maybe, you know, a thousand companies, they'll wheedle them down to a hundred, then they'll wheedle them down to like the final 25. And as a judge, you're sitting in on those final 25 and you're listening to pitches that are, it's in the the ecosystem of sports tech, but, you know, each company can do something different. And it is always wonderful to hear a confident founder who has done their homework on who they're pitching to, right? And when they are asked a question that is at a left field, they don't punt, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give you an example. I was in a, I was in a final, a, an accelerator finalist pitch earlier this week, and there was a, there's a really cool technology, and they're all cool technologies. And one of the questions that was asked was, "Well, I'm a winter sport." And my, you know, my, and my people are out there and they're, they're skiing and they're sledding and they're snowboarding and it's, you know, 40 degrees below zero. Are you, is, is your device tested at 40 degrees below zero? Uh, that question, like now easily somebody could have known by the audience that they were talking to that that could be a question. And so this, so the, the founder basically said, that is such a wonderful question. I'm going to share with you that our testing has gone to 10 degrees below and we're, we're fine. We've never, our form factor has never broken either underwater or 10 degrees below. We, have, we haven't gotten to 40 degrees below, but I can tell you this is where we are. So the point that I'm making is that he had already done his homework and he is not going no. to punt or lie about, oh yeah, of course right. we could do that because that's where you get into trouble. Yes, yeah, and you mislead people. Joe, I know we're gonna lose you in a minute we, and we may need a few after that to close, but do, do you have any last questions before you head out? Um, you touch on a little bit at least, but what's the, um, what's the biggest mistake that people make when they go into any kind of pitch, whether it go back to your NHL days when companies were coming in, the common mistake that people make would, that makes you roll your eyes even today after you advise them not to is what? is when they assume they know what they don't know. Yep. Okay. Cool. When I can tell you when I was at the NHL and people would come in to pitch me, it felt to me like they read our website. So they understood the programs that we did and they made assumptions about what our problems were and nothing would make me crazier than somebody assuming uh, about, you know, pain points about my business um, without understanding my business. So what I really wanted to hear was, tell me about your business. Tell me about your product. And I'm going to make a decision whether or not what you're offering me is something I need. Because, you know, as a founder, you could think everybody needs your product, but they don't. And if you walk in making an assumption that a company needs your product, when they haven't said to you, I need your product. Ooh, that's just, that's, that's like bloviating. <laughs> it makes me nuts. <laughs> Related to that, Joe, I'll just, I'll, I'll tell you a quick anecdote. I did a consulting assignment about eight years ago with the startup and my partner on the assignment was my old boss from the NFL, Jim Schwabel, well-known longtime head of sponsorship at the NFL, wonderful guy. We spent months, the, the company really wanted to meet the NFL, the key people at the NFL. And you know, that's a tough meeting to get. 
but through our connections and a, and a lot of uh, elbow grease, like we got it set up with all the right people in the room, as they say, I think literally like seven executives. And I'll never forget this. We coached our client well, and he was not that young. He was probably in his forties and he'd been around the block. You know, do this, emphasize that, don't do this, don't say that, you know, again, in a, in a respectful way as, as you learn how to do as a consultant, we get into the room and he basically ignored all the advice we've given him. He starts using phrases like, you guys need to, this yeah. is in front of like SVPs at the biggest league in the country. And Jim literally was, was kicking my ankle underneath because we were sitting next to each other because our client was at the front of the room making his presentation. And, I, and within about 20 or 30 seconds, we realized we just, we just lost this opportunity. This, this turned out to be a disastrous meeting. Now, the NFL guys were gracious as league people often are in those meetings, but you know exactly what I'm saying, where the content of what he was presenting was pretty good but he blew it on the tone and the attitude. And, and we get down to the lobby because we couldn't talk and you know, leading to the elevator and then there's people in the elevator and we get to the lobby and we're like, what the hell was that? Well, what do you mean? He, and he thought he had done great. <laughs> so, uh, classic. Anyway, um, Elise, we finished up with two questions we warned you about. Uh, the first, and this is an important one for you since you're doing so many different things, both related to, to West and the advising uh, biz. How do you stay smart? What, what is important for you right now in terms of keeping up? That is a daily effort. Uh, so it, it's between speaking to people in my network every day so that I can understand what they're doing, what they're working on, what they're focusing on, because everybody touches on a different part of the ecosystem. And it's like getting information from the horse's mouth. That's, so I'm always having those conversations on a daily basis. Of course, I, you know, I read, uh, you know, I, I'll read like, you know, SBJ Daily and, and, uh, and front office sports. And because I just want to understand like the highlights. And if there's something that is relevant to me, relevant to my portfolio companies, I'll just forward that right on because I want them to understand. Um, and then, of course, you know, like anybody else, I will listen to podcasts that are not necessarily related to the world of sports, but they are related to the world of technology, digital media, like I love Kara Swisher and Sway, because she knows how to ask a question like nobody's business. And when you understand what's happening in the larger ecosystem, it makes it very easy to be able to pull out, you know, little, little pearls of wisdom, you know, if you will. And, and I, I, you know, I love things like that. I read the New York Times every day and I read The Economist every week because I want to know what's happening in the world and what's happening, things that have nothing to do with sports, but in some way, shape or form, it matters. Yeah. Yeah. So. One follow-up on that. What, which investing podcasts do you like? I, I'm just curious because there's some really, there's a lot of them out there. You know, Andreessen Horowitz has, has a lot that they do. Um, Invest like the best with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, which I think is really excellent. But which which ones are you checking out? I I actually don't listen to investing podcasts. Okay. Um, I read things like TechCrunch um, and Crunchbase and CNBC that comes across my desk, and I I do that because. Um, this, this goes back to the conversations that I have daily with my network. I'll, at, during any given week, I'll have a conversation with three or four investment advisors with other you know, sports tech investors, micro VCs, VCs. And I get so much information from them about what they're looking for, what kind of companies they're engaging with. Because you know they always want to do co-investments and we all it's a small world we all help each other but i find that those i'll give you a, i'll give you a quick anecdote about why i like you find out information from them that you would never find out in a podcast so 
a few weeks ago, I had a conversation with a, a uh, an investment company that's based out of um, Michigan, and they're they're like they're very well known. They're really good. I'm having a conversation with a partner, and we're just kind of talking about the trends that we're seeing. And he works. His fund is agnostic. They include sports tech, but they're not only sports tech. And when we were having a conversation about things like valuations. He said, you know, we've done a we've done an extensive and thorough analysis. And what's really interesting is because sports and sports tech is really so small, essentially, like when you when you compare it to like fintech or you compare it to, you know, health tech. Right. It's pretty small. So what's happening is, is most of these companies, they get acquired after their second round. Now, you're not going to find that kind of information anywhere else, but that kind of um, diligence, if you will, that these investors put in to their thought process about how am I going to invest? What am I going to invest in? How is it going to grow? Like that's gold. And you only get that by creating this trust factor that you're providing value to them. They're providing value to you. And you each learn and take away these nuggets of knowledge that really are, are, they're like under the surface, but they're so important. So I could either spend my time having conversations with other investors, startup founders, people in the industry, or I could spend my time listening to this podcast. I only have so much time in the day. <laughs> so that's what I do. Well, you can always use the two, two X speed on, on the podcast listening. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, and lastly, can you please offer some career advice, particularly for the young people listening? And if you want to direct it to young women, maybe maybe that would be interesting. I would love to direct it to young women and thank you for asking. Um, culture matters and there is no no. There is no reason why you can't engage in a career that you want to engage in. And the... It, it, in this particular moment in time, and I can only speak for North America, I can't speak for anywhere else in the world, but at this particular moment in time, um, women do have the ability to change the ratio. We've had enough people come before us, enough women who have broken down those doors, who are CEOs, who are, you know, product, you know, head of product, who are, you know, who do generate the UX, UI, and do all of these, you know, they, they run their CTOs. That those, those doors have been broken down. So now it's just an ability to be able to understand where you want to go, map out how you want to get there, find yourself a mentor who will be willing to grease those wheels and go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. Nice. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. Very succinct, very cogent. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Elise, what a great conversation. Um, congrats on all your successes. It's a, it's a great story and hopefully very inspirational for all the listeners out there. We appreciate you sharing it. Where can folks find you and the organizations you want to mention, particularly WIST? So WIST is at womeninsportstech.org. Um, you can always find me on LinkedIn. You, know, you can always reach me through LinkedIn um, mm -hmm. or newmodeladvisory.com. Um, and I am always thrilled to be able to talk to and meet people who, you know, we can all help each other. That's I don't great. ever want to waste anybody's time because everyone's time is precious and everyone's time is important. Well said. Joe, great show. At least thank you. Thank you for giving us your time today. I mean, really amazing. And, and I, get, I get very emotional when I think about this stuff because it, it kills me that people aren't getting opportunities just because no one's helping them get there. And that's what, you know, especially as being a little bit older, well, at least two of us are a little bit older, Tom and I, <laughs> uh, uh, well, we don't go there, but um, um, it, it's great to see. And, and what keeps us energized, especially being around young people is the opportunities that are ahead of them as long as we can help them take advantage of them. Yeah, and, and also I should add, uh, Joe, um, just publicly acknowledge Elisa's support of my class at Columbia, where she's been a wonderful guest evaluator of student digital media presentations. And she will be returning as a yearly guest because she's so good at it. So thank you on behalf of the students and, and our producer, Taylor, 
who yep. actually got to, got to meet Elise last December, which was cool. Uh, uh, online. It, uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure. It, yeah. It's such a pleasure. And, you know, honestly, I mean, you're one of my favorite guys. So like anybody who I went back to the NHL with is they're always good in my book. And, and yeah, Joe, well, you are, you. you're, you're a legend. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for saying that. The feeling, the feeling is mutual. And I, I think back with uh, very fond memories about those days, and I'm glad we've been able to keep up through the years and thank you again for joining us. Thanks to Taylor, to Bernardo for producing as always. We really appreciate it. Taylor, the week to week support, plus the backroom editing and work you have to do to make this happen. Uh, thanks to Tom Cerny. Thanks to Ben Walsh. Thanks to Columbia, LJ, Scott, etc. cetera. Um, Elise, enjoy the hockey season. Uh -huh. Good I luck will. with all your work. And we will see you in class probably within a couple months, okay? I look forward to it. And everybody be safe and enjoy. Thanks. Thanks for listening, Thank everybody. We'll see you next time on The Cusp Show.